Good morning, fellowship. This morning, our reading comes from Psalm 13, five and six, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship this morning.
praise this morning. We serve a good, almighty God. Man, you may be seated. Church, we got some fun stuff coming up this week. And so, in two days, um, on Tuesday night this week, in the FSM room, which is right across the way there, uh, we've got WLC. So it's a, it's a night of worship for all of the women um, want to come together as, as ladies and, and worship together. Um, man, I'm super excited to see this happening. I know my wife's going to be there. I think we're going to have a good turnout. So if you're a lady in the audience, um, please consider coming to that. Again, that is Tuesday night. You don't have to sign up. Just show up. Um, and before that, tomorrow night, so on Monday night, we've got the Spectra Creative Collective, and so we've been plugging this the last few weeks. We've got a lot of sign-ups, and so I'm super excited about this. This is just um, a platform for us to gather all the creatives in our church, and so we're going to share um, ways that we worship as creatives and hopefully inspire others to, to worship in the same way. So if you consider yourself creative, even in the littlest bit, um, please check this out, come to that. You do need to sign up today, though, because we're gonna have food at this event. So to sign up, um, it's that QR code. If you wanna take a picture of that QR code, you can sign up that way. We also have links on our social media, but do that today, um, because that event is tomorrow night. Uh, lastly, I wanted to plug something that has been really helpful um, for me. So there's a, a member in our church, Justin Gearhart, um, does this podcast, and it's really incredible. It's called Holy Ghost Stories. And what he does is he tells these Old Testament narratives, and he does it in a really unique, creative way. Um, and so it's been really helpful to me to become immersed in these stories. And he actually has a two-part uh, episode on the book of Esther. And so you can find this, um, any, any podcast set up through Apple or Spotify, however you uh, access your podcasts, uh, Holy Ghost Stories is on it. And so, again, this is just a resource for you, um, maybe some, um, just some help in studying these scriptures. And so, again, the Esther series is in that, so I encourage you, check it out if you don't know about it already. Well, Clark is going to lead us through some more things this morning. Yeah, come on up, Crystal. Good morning, church family. How are we today? My name is Clark. If I haven't met you, I have the privilege of serving on staff here as one of the pastors and there's no place I'd rather be than in here with you this morning. And so we're celebrating something really cool today with believers and followers of Jesus all over the nation, uh, fellow churches across the nation, Sanctity of Life Sunday. And we always love to celebrate our partner ministries who are on the front lines um, holistically coming alongside families to save babies. And so Crystal Simpson is with us this morning, and she's the Director of Development with Loving Choices. And um, I've asked her to come up and just share a little bit about their ministry and what they do and how we can be a part of that. And so, Crystal, just first off, tell us why Loving Choices exists, how long Loving Choices has been around, and, and where they are in Fayetteville. Sure. Um, yeah, you're Choice, good. Okay. Loving Choices um, has been in Northwest Arkansas in operation for 35 years, and we have been serving, um, we orig originally started out serving women who found themselves in an unplanned pregnancy, um, or maybe they thought they were pregnant. Um, we also do STD testing right now. We also um, have now, we've kind of expanded, and we serve men as well. So um, we serve not just women, but the whole family, because we all know that um, a woman is more likely to carry if she has father of the baby along with her. 
So um, we have found it really important that we serve men just as well as we serve women. And what are some of the other services that you guys provide ongoing in that process? Yep. So on top of the free and confidential pregnancy testing and STD testing and the mentorships, um, we have we offer a care program where women and men both can come. They um, come for a weekly standing one-hour appointment where they will meet with a peer mentor, a same mentor um, from the time they find out they're pregnant until the baby is nine months old. So it really is a... Um, you know, it's not just up until the baby's born, like the media would tell you, that's all we care about is getting the baby born. That's, that is so false and so far from the truth and heart of loving choices. We are there um, up until the baby is nine months old. Um, we also offer um, an abortion reversal pill. So if um, a woman has ordered the abortion pill offline, which can be done in the state of Arkansas, um, she takes that first pill and she regrets it. She can call us and we can meet her and walk her through um, taking the abortion reversal pill um, and to get her the follow-up care that she needs as well. Yeah. So, If someone here wanted to be a part of what you guys are doing, obviously we can give and we're doing that um, through the baby, baby bottle campaign. What are some ways that others can serve alongside yeah. of you guys. So we're always looking for the peer mentors to come and volunteer in our center, whether that's on what we call the crisis side, when a woman first comes into our facility, just to kind of walk her through that pregnancy test, um, the results of it and what next steps look like. Then um, we're always looking for volunteers on the care side as well for that weekly standing appointment and commitment to be um, with the the woman as she walks through her pregnancy. Um, of course, you can always be a prayer partner for us. That's always um, something that anybody could do. Um, and then, of course, give. Yeah. Oh, the last thing I would mention, just real quick, we didn't even yeah. talk about this, is we have these QR codes. And I would ask if you own a business or if you're in a school or somewhere where you know you can take these, um, we recommend that you take them and you just stick them to the back of the stall where someone can discreetly um, scan them. This will get a woman or a male uh, to our website where they can find out more about our services. And I have these back in the back as well. Okay. Hey, you're going to be with us, you and your family. They're going to be passing out baby bottles here as you leave today. And then um, you'll also um, be able to access information back here in the booth as you walk out to your right. And so, hey, as, as, as we um, pray for you guys, is there an anecdote or a story that really captures why you're a part of this experience? Sure. I mean, people ask, what's your typical client look like? There really is no typical client for us. We um, see girls from the age of 13 and 14. Um, all the way up to 62, uh, depending on their needs. Um, the story that comes to mind the most for me, because I have only been with Loving Choices for less than six months, is um, we had this one client who she already had a 16-year-old son, and she found herself pregnant again, and she thought, I just can't do this. Um, I, I can't disappoint my parents again. I can't disappoint my pastor again. What will my son say about me? Um, so she came in, you know, um, came back for several ultrasounds, talked with her peer mentor. We um, kind of got her settled down, realized that she can do this. Um, so she was ready to tell her son, and she brought her 16-year-old son in. He didn't know what they were there for. He just thought he was going to an appointment with his mom. Um, and so they uh, take her back into the ultrasound room, and they do an ultrasound. And when um, the picture of the baby came up, the son was like, mom, is that a baby? Is that a baby? And, and she said, yes. And he's like, we're gonna have a baby? 
Um, and so I think that's just a testimony to it really is a family. Um, and he was so excited and, you know, that must have been a weight lifted off her shoulders to know that her son was going to be there with her and supported her as well. Yeah. But then my first week in the office, she came back with her 18-month-old baby who just oh, wow. toddled around, and it was just the most precious thing. And to think mm -hmm. that um, that baby could have been ab aborted because this client didn't know that she could really do it on her own, and we were able yeah. to pour into her and tell her, you can do this again. We are here with you. Yeah. So that, that is why we exist, to help women and men know that they can do this and they are not alone. We are there to support them. Well, Crystal, thank yes. you for serving on the front lines. And yes. as a church, we're behind you guys, and I want to pray for you. And don't forget to grab one of these on the way out today. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for loving choices and their staff and their sacrifices they make. Uh, to come alongside families uh, to choose life. And God, I pray that you would give them wisdom and grace and discernment each step of the way with each individual client um, to know how to best serve them and love them well. God, I pray that you would continue to use them as uh, just this light of hope there. Um, here in Fayetteville, just down there by the high school. Um, thank you for Crystal. Pray blessings on her and her family and her ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Crystal. Amen. Church, we've, uh, if you would, let's stand together. We've still got people coming in the back, so if you see any room um, in the center of your sections, if you could scoot in, that's going to help our ushers a ton, a ton uh, getting people seated. Um, as we continue to worship this morning, let's pause for a second and let's remember that we're a sinful people in need of a Savior. So, Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. In church, for those of us in the room that have acknowledged Jesus as the only path to salvation, we believe in, in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, and we trust him with our lives. There's hope for us. So church, believe the good news. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a savior. To God be the glory forever and ever, amen. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many, His mercy is more. Without bottom or straw 
Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. Go ahead, family. Go ahead and come on up here. Uh, this is Asa, and this is Noah. Noah, come on. Go, come on down here. And uh, what a perfect song to celebrate uh, baptism in, is it not? And uh, with baptism, it's an outward expression of an inward change that the Lord has made in someone's heart. And in baptism, we're identifying with the death of the Lord and the burial, and then also in the resurrection, and that's our identity our new identity. And so this is what identifies you now, Noah, is, is the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And this is Asa. Asa's known Noah for a long time. He's going to share a little bit about him. Hello, Fellowship. Uh, this is Noah, uh, a long friend of mine. Uh, known Noah since the third grade. We played peewee football uh, growing up and all the way to college. Uh, me and Noah are roommates in college. He got to see me in high school sin a lot, and uh, when I got to college, he got to see my uh, life get turned around uh, through the Lord's work. And so uh, it wasn't until recently, Noah, this past summer, started asking uh, just questions about church, the Bible, uh, what that means for him. And so uh, we just started walking through Scripture, through uh, Genesis, uh, Matthew, Romans, Acts. Uh, it's been really cool just to see Noah learn and be eager to grow, um, and it's become, it's become evident that Noah is in Christ and a new creation, uh, just seeing this, the fruits of the Spirit in his life, um, he's been sharing the gospel at work uh, with his friends, uh, just fighting sin, and so uh, Noah, with that being said, is it true that Jesus is the Lord of your life? Yes. Well, awesome, it's now my pleasure as your uh, best friend and brother in Christ to Baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Bear with Christ. Bear with Christ and rest. There's the walking news.
that is true for us this morning as we stand redeemed as followers of you that your mercy is more and more because we need it every single day we need your mercy but we have it full and complete the life death and resurrection of your son Jesus and so we can stand here confident this morning and celebrate that and proclaim that it's because of your goodness and your mercy that we have redemption God we love you thank you for your son it's in his name amen you can have a seat. Well, good morning, fellowship. My name's Tad. I get to serve here on the student ministry team, and I'm really excited to be in here with y'all this morning because Esther is genuinely one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, probably right behind Genesis. I love it. I think it's so uh, just gripping, uh, some of the, the way that it's told. Uh, I studied English in college, and so I find even just some of the creativity of the way that this inspired text also brings to light some just really amazing human creativity when it comes to storytelling, to tell us something about God and help us learn about his plans for us and what he is doing around the world and how he intends to save his people. And so I want us to dive in. We're going to be in chapters five through eight this morning in week three of Esther. We're right in the middle of Esther before we start Daniel, which again, also probably an Old Testament favorite. Uh, and so I'm, I'm just pumped that our church is studying these books right now, and I'm excited to see what God teaches us as a people through it. Uh, so if you have your Bible, open up to Esther chapter five. Um, but when we get to like the middle of a series like this, I find it helpful if we do like a recap of the story. Like, where have we been? What's the story about? Because I know some of y'all probably haven't been here the last two weeks. And so if you're new and you're just jumping in, I want you to be caught up to speed on what the story of Esther is and what's going on before we get to chapter five and then through the section today. Um, and I got in, I'm gonna be honest, kind of wanna do so in like a really silly way. And so y'all humor me a little bit. I'm a student ministry guy. We have some fun over there. I want us to have some fun when we look at Esther. I got in a really funny conversation with my team this week about uh, what if you were to cast uh, modern day like actors in the story of Esther and like remake a movie. And then it devolved further and we were like, well, what? what like Disney characters would you put in this story that would like be each character? And so we're gonna tell the story of Esther as told by Walt Disney. Uh, if you're watching online, I don't know if you're able to see some of the pictures. I've got some really hideous clip art that we're gonna go through, but I'll try to make it clear for us to follow along. So once upon a time in the capital of Persia in the city of Susa, we're introduced to this extravagant King Xerxes I imagine is a lot like Prince John from Robin Hood. He's kind of an idiot a little bit in the story it portrays him. And at the beginning, he's like showing off all of his might and all of his riches and his wealth. And, and be honest, he's kind of got a little bit of a drinking problem. Uh, and so whenever you got the drinking problem like this and he's been partying for weeks on end, showing off his wealth, he also wants to show off some other stuff that makes him feel great. So he wants to show off Queen Vashti, uh, his, his queen, and say, so everybody can see how beautiful she is, but she turns him down. She's like, no, I'm not gonna let you objectify me. So he just tosses her out. He's like, I'm done with you. I don't want you anymore. 
But then he starts to feel kind of sad, and he's like, I'm lonely now. And his friends are like, well, why don't you throw a beauty pageant with all the women of Persia, and you just pick your favorite? And he's like, yeah, yeah, good idea. So then he meets Esther. Esther's one of the women that's caught up in this really unjust system uh, that, that, where he's trying to find a new wife, but he's got hard eyes for Esther. And he's like, I like you. I want to make you my queen. And so he does. Turns out, though, there's some backstory going on. Esther uh, is the cousin of Mordecai. She, she was orphaned uh, as a child. She's been raised by her cousin Mordecai, who I imagine is kind of like Cogsworth from Beauty and the Beast, because he's like this wise advisor, uh, you know? And so, but he, he gives her some wise counsel, and he's like, hey, keep it secret that you're Jewish. Don't let the king know. I think you should keep back that information just for your protection. Don't, don't let him in on that. So she's like, all right, cool, I won't. Uh, and then... And just so happens, Mordecai, he's one of the kind of the wise guys in the cities. He's hanging out by the king's gates with all the other elders of the city, and he overhears a plot. Some people want to assassinate King Xerxes, and they're, they're sneaking up behind him with the knife uh, to assassinate the king, just like Scar did, you know? And, and he goes and he tells Esther, there's a plot forming, and she tells him, look out. And so they take uh, the conspirators, and they impale them on poles. That's what they did in ancient Persia with criminals. They would just skewer them on a kebab. So that happens. Now enters a really terrible character in the story named Haman, who's a lot like Jafar from Aladdin. Uh, He's the king's second in command. He's really selfish and is kind of working a subplot for his own good. Uh, It turns out, though, him and Mordecai hate each other. Uh, They they don't like one another at all. There's some some backstory there. Uh, Haman feels like Mordecai doesn't show him the proper honor when he walks down the streets. And actually, there's even like some family feud from generations back. If you go read 1 Kings, uh, Haman's a descendant uh, of King Agag, who had duked it out with King Saul of the Israelites. And, and Mordecai happens to be from the same tribe as Saul, the Benjamites. And so there's this, this long family feud. They hate each other. Uh, and again, Haman feels very disrespected by Mordecai often. And so he's like, I got to kill that guy. And it's not enough that I kill him. I'm going to use my opportunity here to have all the Jews killed. And so he devises this plan. And he goes to King Xerxes and he's like, hey, I think it'd be a great idea if you killed all the Jews. And so they set a date, they put it on the calendar, like on that date, we're gonna kill all the Jewish people across the entire Persian empire. And he's trying to convince the king to do this. And the king likely, probably a little bit tipsy, is like, sure, sure, you see my drink, let's just do that, sounds good. He doesn't really care, he's not paying much mind to the story here. Uh, And so the story continues. Mordecai learns about the plot. He seeks help from Esther. He says, you've gotta help us. You gotta go to the king. Maybe, maybe you could do something since you're the queen. You've got to leverage your position here to save your people. And she's like, I can't go before the king uh, all just uh, without being summoned. And in fact, he hasn't summoned me to see him for months. So I don't think I could just approach him. If you just approach the king without a cause, you can get killed. I'd be risking my life to do this. And he's like, you've got to do it for your people. Don't think that you could avoid this, that you'll be safe. You have to go and risk everything to save your people. And who knows, Esther, maybe you've come into the... the place of the queen for such a time as this. Get it? Because he's a clock. Yeah, yeah. I got that one from Aaron Parks. All right. So she decides bravely, I'm going to do this. So she says, if I perish, I perish. All right. We're up to chapter five. Let's dive into the story from here on out. If you're following along, we'll have some key passages to read along with. Esther puts on her royal robes and she stands in the inner court of the palace in front of the king's hall. She's waiting to go in and she approaches. He's sitting on the, he's sitting on the throne. And so there's this tense moment. What's going to happen? Is he going to let her in? He does, because he's still got mad hard eyes for Esther. And he says, whatever you want. What's your request, Esther? Up to half my kingdom, I'll give you whatever you want. And she says, what are you doing for dinner? 
I'll tell you what I want, but first, why don't you bring Haman over to my place tonight, and I'll throw you a feast, and then I'll maybe tell you what I, what I want. I'll let you know my request. So she's kind of got him on the hook. He's intrigued. He wants to know what's going on. So they go to Esther's for dinner, and they're hanging out, uh, and he again asks, what do you want, Esther? You can have up to half my kingdom. And she says, I'll tell you tomorrow. Come back again with Haman. She, she's really got him on the hook now. He's got to be really intrigued. What is it, this request that she has that's so important that she... She's kind of being secretive about it, but they agree and they leave. And so uh, Haman, though, he's, he's feeling himself in this moment. He thinks he's the man. He goes home and he throws an after party and he gathers his whole family together. He gets his wife, who I imagine had to look just almost exactly like him because he's so self-glorifying. You know, he'd just be attracted to a woman who looked exactly like him because he's in love with himself. But he's bragging about all of his stuff. It says he boasted of them about his vast wealth, his many sons, all the ways the king had honored him, and how he had elevated him above all the other nobles and officials. And that's not all. Haman said, I'm the only one that Queen Esther invited to go to the, the banquet with the king. I'm so special. I'm so awesome. But then he remembers. But none of that gives me any satisfaction as long as Mordecai sits at the king's gate. I hate that guy. I can't be content with my life because I stink and hate Mordecai so much, which is really sad, right? that he has almost everything he could want. But this rivalry has gotten him so bent out of shape that he can't enjoy the life he has. And so he's talking about how he hates Mordecai and his family suggests to him, why don't you just set up a giant stake in the front yard and go to the king tomorrow and ask if we can impale Mordecai? Wouldn't that be a fun idea? And Haman loves the idea. He says, awesome, I'm doing that. But what's going on back at the palace, you might ask? Well, I'll tell you. The king is lying in bed awake and he can't sleep. It says the king could not sleep that night. And so he ordered that the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, be brought and read to him. And so they bring in the storyteller, who's the same guy from The Princess Bride, and he reads him a bedtime story to help him get to sleep. And as he's sitting there, it just so happens that they read about Mordecai and how he exposed the assassins, the king's officers who had tried to kill him and conspired to kill him. And it just so happens that the king is feeling generous. He says, what did I do to thank that guy? And grandpa says, nothing. You did nothing for him because you're very selfish. He says, I should probably do something for him. He says, yeah, you're right. So next morning, Haman strolls up to the palace, excited to ask the king to kill Mordecai, his enemy, but he gets cut off before he can bring up his request. And the king says, hey, how should the king honor a great man in whom he's well-pleased? And of course, Haman thinks he's talking about him. So he describes this really, really extravagant parade. You should put that man on the king's horse Put him in the king's robes. Let even let him wear your crown and carry your scepter. Parade him around town, chanting, look at this amazing man whom the king loves. You should all want to be like that guy. And the king says, that's a great plan. Go do that for Mordecai. And that's just terrible for Haman. He takes Mordecai and does exactly as the king said. And the king said, don't neglect a single thing that you suggested. Do it all for Mordecai. And so he leads him on a parade to the city saying, look at this man that everybody should want to be like. He's amazing. He's amazing. And the whole time he was very, very sad about it. In fact, he goes home and he tells his family about how terrible this situation is. And even they kind of turn on him and they're like, hey, if your downfall has started and Mordecai's of Jewish origin, then you will not stand against him. And they're all like, you're probably going to die. They immediately change their tune. But before he can respond, he gets whisked away to the palace for Esther's second feast and they get to dinner, and the king asks, all right, Esther, tell us, we've come back. What is it that you want up to half my kingdom? And she tells him, she says, if I have found favor with the king, majesty, if it pleases you to grant me my life, that's my request, is my life. This is my plea. Spare my people. That's my request. For my people and I have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. 
If we had just been going to be sold into slavery, I wouldn't have bothered you with this, but, but I, I don't want to die. And I don't think you would want your queen to be killed. But there's a conspirator who's set up this whole thing. And she finally turns the table and she points out, save us from Haman, the villain, the one who has plotted to have us killed. And the king turns and he's very angry about it. He storms out, but then he storms back in and his, Haman is groveling on the floor, clutching at Queen Esther's dress, saying, please don't kill me. The king thinks that he's assaulting the queen and says, I'm going to kill you. And they take him and they have him impaled on the very stake that he set up for Mordecai. Come full circle. And now the villain is dead. And so the story ends, Esther and Mordecai are with the king and they reverse, or they don't reverse the edict, but they make a way for the Jews to defend themselves. And in fact, it says that Mordecai is elevated. He goes out from the king's presence wearing royal garments. He puts a crown on his head. And the whole city of Susa held a joyous celebration for the Jews. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebration. And in fact, many people of other nationalities became Jews because the fear of the Jews had seized them. And they all lived happily ever after. That is Esther, as told by Walt Disney. So that's our story. All right, that, that's Esther. Hopefully that gets us caught up to speed on what's going on in this amazing story, this book. Some of you might be thinking, that's really silly. And yes, it is. And maybe even, hopefully not irreverent. But the point of telling the story this way, of kind of leaning into the humor of the story of Esther, because I really think that the writer of Esther did some of these things like this on purpose. That when you look at the story and you read it for what it is and in its time and its context, there's actually a lot of humor and irony and exaggeration all to make a point. I think this story inspired by the spirit of God to teach his people something and yet also bringing into terms that God partners with human beings to share his word and brings to the table the ingenuity and the creativity of the Jewish writers as they write this story down to communicate to other people about the amazing sovereignty of their God. And they would use things like irony throughout this story. Uh, and they use a device that, that we're probably not that common or associated with called the chiasm. You know, here's kind of our English class type thing. Uh, a chiasm. If you have your Esther Daniel book, there's a chart on page 10, I believe, that, that outlines this story. And I don't, hope you can maybe see the text on the screen. But, but essentially, the pattern of a chiasm is it would take a story and almost fold it open in half. And each side mirrors the other either with exact correlations or sometimes opposites, but these scenes that rhyme one another. And they all converge at the center, uh, to, to the central part of the story. And that's kind of like how they would write something in bold. It's really creative and poetic, uh, a way to tell a story. Uh, at the beginning of chapter three, you'd see that Haman is elevated. But by the end of chapter eight, it's Mordecai who's elevated. At first, in, there's an edict against the Jews. Now there's an edict for the Jews. There was a conversation with Mordecai and Esther. Now there's a conversation with Esther and Xerxes. And right at the middle of this story, the climax of Esther, the part where we're really supposed to be paying attention is these scenes that involve Esther's feasts and what happens. And the writers creatively designed this story to tell us something and, and arrange the parts of it creatively to draw attention to the central part that they're trying to convey. To help, you, help us see it clearly with just kind of one of the instances that mirrors itself. Isn't it interesting and ironic and almost humorous in a dark way that Haman prepares a parade for himself and a poll for Mordecai, and yet by the end of this story, we've done a complete backflip, and now it's Haman on the pole and Mordecai getting the parade, being honored and elevated. They've done a total 180. It's ironic. It's extreme. And this radical reversal, though, is supposed to communicate something to us. 
I think this, these true events that are being told, and yet the writer is, is arranging it in a way to help us see something and employing the creative devices of a chiasm to draw attention to something that's happening here. And for the clever reader, for the one who's been paying attention, who's been watching closely to see this, they would likely be reminded of an age-old truth that is written all across the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New, and it is this uh, concept, this idea that God opposes the proud and shows grace to the humble. It says in Psalm 138, though the Lord is on high, he regards the lowly, but the proud he keeps from afar. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 23, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's not exactly what happened in this story with Haman. He tries to exalt himself, and yet he is shamed and humbled at the end. Peter picks up this same idea at 1 Peter 5. He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. James 4, 6 says explicitly that. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And we see that on display in Esther. And I think we're supposed to pay attention to it. The author wants us to see this and to reflect on it. Because imagine you're in this seat of the Jewish people, and we're gonna learn next week that this turns into a feast called Purim where annually they would read this story and one of the family members would get up and read the entire story of Esther to all the children at the table and maybe employ some silly ways to do it to keep their attention. And if you're being told this story as a Jewish person who's looking at their situation through time, this would be such an encouragement. God opposes the proud and shows grace to the humble. I wonder what it was like for the Jews uh, in between the, this time of this story and the time of Jesus when the Greeks finally took over the empire from Persia and their temple was desecrated and they're feeling completely lost from God, a million miles away from him. And yet the family member gets up at the Purim celebration and says, we're gonna still do it. We're gonna read the story. That, that, like that family member who every Christmas has to read the nativity story no matter what the, the circumstances, Right? That family member stands up, and by the end of reading the story, they're reminded, though it seems like we are being humbled right now, in due time, God will, will come for our rescue. And those proud that have come against us and who have desecrated our temple and our, our home, that have postured themselves against God, God will act. He will bring justice because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It also, beyond a comfort, might stand as a conviction and a warning don't give in to the lure of empire. Don't give in to the draw of power and popularity and pleasure and possessions like King Xerxes. Don't give in. Don't think that that's a better way to live. Humble yourself. That is God's way. God sees you in your humble state. And they would think about that when they hear the story of Haman and his ridiculous downfall. And maybe they would laugh and it would bring some levity to their situation and they would reflect on these truths that God has for us. But remember, the chiasm points to the center and it draws attention beyond just that theme that God opposes the proud against grace to the humble. What is the writer trying to draw attention to in this story? What's right in the middle of that conflict between Haman and Mordecai? What happened right between Esther's two parties? What single unlikely event initiated the dramatic reversal of this entire narrative? The king could not sleep. Why is this the center of this story? What are we supposed to reflect on here? What are we supposed to 
ascertain from this moment. You're telling me that the king, who almost in every single scene it's been, has been portrayed as a little drunk, couldn't sleep that night, that he hadn't drunken himself into a stupor after Esther's party. And it just so happened that he took interest in that moment and wanting to know the affairs of his kingdom, so he called for the chronicler. And it just so happened that the storyteller happened to read the story of Mordecai saving him and protecting him from the assassins. And it just so happened that this king, who up until now has been totally greedy, totally self-absorbed, totally self-obsessed, is suddenly benevolent and wants to show some generosity. We've said it in here before. God is not explicitly mentioned in the entire story of Esther. He's never mentioned once. But come on, right? You're telling me that all those things just happened by chance, by irony? No, no, I think the author is intentionally leaving God out of the story to invite us to look between the lines, to search for him ourselves, to see his divine action throughout this story. It's brilliant. And God's name is nowhere in this story, but his fingerprints are all over it. And I really think in that moment, he turned the circumstances to oppose the proud and show favor to the humble. He demonstrates his sovereignty in this moment. And I think the author of Esther wants us to see that and wants us to be encouraged by that. Garland opened up this series by asking the question, what do we do when it feels like God is a million miles away and he's nowhere in our story? I think the story of Esther reminds us that he's everywhere. He's in between every single line, in between all the space between the letters on every single page of your story. At work, he's sovereign. He's over everything. And the story of Esther ought to remind us that. And so just as Peter said in in Peter 5, if God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, then the natural outcome, the way we ought to respond to that is by humbling ourselves under the sovereign hand of God. We would recognize our God is in control even when circumstances suggest otherwise, that he is working a better plan beyond what we can see. Just as it says in the Testament that God works everything to good for, for those who love him, even when we can't see it. So humble ourselves under his hand. Trust in his divine plan. Believe that he is for our good, that he knows us. And again, that also though serves as a warning that he sees when we posture ourselves over others when we elevate ourselves unjustly in this world, we don't want to set ourselves up as God's opponents. We want to fall on his grace. Remember that while we were still sinners, while we were still his enemies, he died for us. And we want to fall on that and trust in his sovereign plan. Humble ourselves in that way. I want to end practically, though, or I wanted to end practically. But after thinking this and seeing this on the pages of Esther, and thinking through, what does it look like to humble ourselves under God's sovereign hand? Because I'll be the cynic in the room. I'll be that person. That sounds great, Dad, but what does that look like? Especially when circumstances are bad. What does it look like to humble ourselves under God's sovereign hand? Like you can memorize that verse, but practically what do I do? That's harder than it sounds. And you're right. And I wish I had like a very tangible, practical, step-by-step list of here's what we should all go out and do this week to humble ourselves under the sovereign hand of God. But, but I, I don't know if it's there. I don't know if Esther and Mordecai had a specific game plan for that either. And so I, I want to kind of land on presenting almost like another chiasm of sorts or a spectrum. And just something as I've been reflecting on and invite you into the tension with me as we feel the story of Esther and we try to learn from it and, and change our lifestyle because of it and really trust in God's sovereignty 
that we could go a couple different routes. If we believe in God's sovereignty, on the one hand, we could choose avoidance. And we could say, if God's going to work everything out for good, then I don't need to do anything. And I can just avoid it and step back and see how this all unfolds. I don't really need to do anything. I could just avoid it. But the problem with that, that that's a ditch I think we should avoid, is because that ultimately displays a lack of belief in God's sovereignty. To avoid says, I believe in God's sovereignty, but not enough to take action that he would protect me in that, to not take risks. It also, I think, is a lack of humility because it says, I don't want to leave my comfort, and my comfort is more important than taking action for the sake of those that are being treated unfairly and being a part of God's redemptive purpose to combat the sin and the darkness of our world. I don't think that's what Esther did. In fact, Mordecai counseled her against it. Don't think you can avoid this. Don't think you can just be a bystander and watch. But on the other side of this, kind of standing on the other hand of the chiasm or the rhyme to avoidance would be aggression and trying to seize control back. Notice Esther didn't poison Haman whenever he came to her party. Mordecai didn't go uh, round up a renegade army to oppose the king. They didn't go towards outright aggression as their answer. Again, I think those ditches stand in front of us, and it's so easy to land in those places. It's really easy when we see the hurting of somebody or somebody being treated unfairly to, or experience a really hard loss to just say, it must have been God's plan. God will work everything together for good. And while that's true, doesn't that sound so heartless in the moment? And maybe sometimes we just say that to people because we don't want to just sit and feel grief with them or step into the mess and be with them in that. On the other hand, we don't do the aggression route. Kind of that, we need to take back our fill-in-the-blank mentality. We should go and seize back what we need for our good and almost saying, my understanding of what God's will is, is better than everybody else's, and I'm going to go achieve that and be God's hand for him. we got to avoid those. I don't see Esther and Mordecai doing that. And yet somewhere in between, kind of in the tension of that space, somewhere between acceptance and action, maybe is where we're being drawn to, that, that central focal point of this story. Uh, that Esther in that moment had to accept the reality of her world. She accepted that I live in an evil, unjust world where people are mistreated and injustices go unchecked. And I recognize that my circumstances are beyond my own control. But it's not out of God's control. And he might have a greater end that I can't see. And yet, if God is sovereign, and I know based off scripture that the sovereign God delights to act through human beings who are humble and obedient to him through his image bearers, then maybe he has positioned me for such a time as this to take action and to step in or speak up on behalf of those experiencing oppression or injustice for the good of my fellow man in the world. And maybe I need to do something and take some sort of action. And that tension between those things, I think I see that, that that's what Esther did. She takes action. She denies avoidance. But she also denies the aggression and is willing to say, I know it's going to take action, and yet I might have to die to myself. If I perish, I perish. 
And I think most of the time that we step into this, if we step into the tension, it would look like that, that we would self-sacrifice for the sake of our fellow man, that we would be a part of God's redemptive work by laying down our life for the sake of others. As New Testament believers, we have a significantly greater example than Esther because Jesus did this in the perfect way, in the way that saved us. We see Paul say to the Philippians, as you go about your life, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in the appearance of a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every other name. God did not avoid the sin and the brokenness and the injustice of the world by saying, I'm God, I'm above all this, I don't have to intervene. He also didn't just absolutely burn us and smite us and say, if that's what you want, be gone. He accepts us as we are in our broken state and still loves us, and yet he has to take action out of love for us to save us from our sins and the things that we do to destroy ourselves. And Jesus perfectly entered into that tension space by humbling himself, self-sacrificing out of love to save us. And if we wanna be his followers, if we wanna make a difference in the world, if we wanna take his message of the gospel and redemption and renewed relationship and recreation and resurrection to the ends of the earth, we'll probably have to do what he did there enter into that tension space at our own expense at times to say like Esther, if I perish, I perish. I have a mindset of Christ. What would it look like to do that? And I hope that as we continue our series through Esther and into Daniel, that we would keep thinking like that as a church. And we would ask God in those quiet moments with him, Lord, what are you calling me to do? I accept that you're in control and I recognize that you've made me to take action in this moment. So would you give me the wisdom to do so? Would you work your good plan? I trust you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for the story of Esther and how we can learn from it even today. I think the story is beautiful and it challenges me to no end because I know that oftentimes I give in to the impulse to be more like Haman or Xerxes than to be like Esther and to lay down my good for the sake of other people. Would you change that in me? Or as we look to you, Jesus, and we see your example and the way that you have loved us, will we love others the way you love us, even being willing to lay down our life for them, whatever that looks like, to take risks, God, because we believe in your sovereignty. We know that you have us, and you're in control. We love you, amen. promise still stands great is your faithfulness faithfulness i'm still in your hands this is my confidence you never fail me yet your promise still stands great is your faithfulness 
To, to hear these stories, this, this narrative of Esther about God's faithfulness, I'm reminded of another story. It's one of my absolute favorite stories in the Old Testament. It's found in 2 Kings chapter 19. It's found in a couple of different places, but um, it's a lesser known story, so you might not be familiar with it. But I wanna tell it because I think it, it sets up the next song that we're gonna sing. And so in 2 Kings, 19, we hear about King Hezekiah, and he's got uh, the, the nation of Judah inside their walls of Jerusalem. And while, while he's there and, and king over them, the Assyrian army is just wreaking havoc. And so you might remember the Assyrians. About this time last year, we were going through the book of Jonah, and the Assyrians are the ones that Jonah did not want to preach the good news to. He did not want to preach... Um, a, a, a message of redemption if they repent. He wanted them to perish, and, and probably for good reason, because these Assyrians were, were real bad dudes. They were known as maybe, maybe the most brutal and successful um, army in the history of, of everything, of all time. And they would not just come into these different um, tribes and and, and nations and, and just desolate, but they would, they would kill women and children. They would, they would skin you alive. I mean, they were brutal, they had no remorse. And so this Assyrian army led by Sennacherib is, is coming on to um, King Hezekiah and the nation of Judah. And King Hezekiah is, is sending messengers and he's pleading that, that they don't attack them, but Sennacherib is pretty set in his ways. And so fast forward to um, the night of the attack. King Hezekiah prays this prayer. You should go read it in 2 Kings chapter 19. It's a beautiful prayer. But he says this, he says, God, Yahweh, you alone are the one true God. All of these other nations that got decimated by the Assyrian army, they pray to their gods, but they're just these idols of wood and of stone. They're not real gods. You alone are the one true God, and you alone are the one that can stop this Assyrian army. You're the one that can deliver us from certain death. So the story goes on, and that night, the Assyrians plan to attack. Scriptures say, the angel of the Lord came and defended the nation of Judah. And hundreds of thousands of Assyrians that came to attack, the angel of the Lord defended against them. And the angel of the Lord killed 185,000 in the Assyrian army. He defended his people. and He delivered them. And so where Psalm 46 picks up the song that we're about to sing, I want to read the psalm. And so this is the response. King Hezekiah comes out the next morning 
and he sees what Yahweh has done. He sees the deliverance that's laid out before him. Hear this response. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's stand. Let's respond in worship. Oh, come behold the works of God, the nations at his feet. He breaks the bow and bends the spear and tells the wars to cease. Oh, mighty one, of Israel, you are on our side. We walk by faith in God who burns the chariots with
oceans roar, you are the Lord of all, the one whom calms the wind and waves and makes my heart be still. The earth gives way, the mountains move into the sea, the nations rage, I know my God is in control. situation in this room and so father may we trust you more that you're in control that you're the deliverer we see that time and time again throughout your scriptures god we can cling to that we can trust in that god your son you sent jesus to come to this earth to redeem us from our sin God, to give us life, to breathe life into us. He's the only path to redemption. God, you showcase your love through him and it's through that that we can rejoice that we've been delivered. And so God, we thank you for that, that we can trust in your son Jesus. And that's why we sing week after week. That's why we can rejoice. That's why we can have joy. It's joy that's, that's never ending. Uh, and so God, thank you for your son. Church, as we sing this next song, let's sing it over one another as a benediction, encouraging one another to press on in our walks of faith. Press on, press on, we're safe in his arms. When troubles and trials come our way, and seek peace. Show grace and hold fast to your faith for our Savior forever will reign. Sing one more time, church. Sing press on. Press on, press on. We are safe in his house. When troubles, when troubles and trials come. 
available through these doors on your right. We've got communion available in there as well. Have a great week of worship, church. We'll see you next week.